treasured in our own lives, Lord, that you are the highest possession that we have. If we have you, we have everything. If we do not have you, we have nothing. Lord, we pray that your name would be on our lips. We pray that we would be sharing your gospel to those who are lost, broken, and hurting, Lord. Lord, that people would be saved by your gospel, Lord, through the work of Christ Jesus, Lord, and that we would be your instruments 
Lord, to bring salvation to our communities, to our friends, God. May we not be silent. May we honor your name by spreading your gospel. Lord, may we honor your name even now as we come before your word, Lord, that we give it our full attention. Lord, for you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and when the King of kings speaks, we listen. And Lord, we pray that as we learn about you, as we hear about Christ, that our hearts would be transformed by the work of your spirit. Lord, we ask that there are any here, Lord, that are not saved, Lord, that you would save them today, that this would be the great day of salvation. So we ask this for the glory of your name. Lord, we ask for your power and your equipping for this purpose. We do it in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. This morning, we're going to be uh, sharing from the Gospel of, of Luke, chapter 19. If you recall the scripture reading just a little while ago, I'll be picking up where that left off, uh, verse 41. But uh, just in a way of introduction, you know, as we went through books, uh, or chapters 9, 10, and 11 of the uh, book of Romans, one of the things that we noticed was uh, how difficult it was for Paul as he looked at all his brothers and sisters in, in the Hebrew nation, the nation of Israel, and how he, he felt uh, so burdened for them because they were not following after Christ. And he made sure that we understood that by the time we got through chapter uh, 11, that we understood that God was not done with the nation of Israel yet. But in the meantime... Paul went as far as to say if there, you know, think how deep this was. He went as far as to say if there was a way that he could trade off his salvation for theirs, he'd do it. And again, I, you know, people will say, well, you can say whatever you want when it's something that you can't possibly do. But remember, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's revealing his heart. And so that is a sense of, of, of desire and burden that maybe even some of you as as, as Parents or grandparents might even have felt at some point, you know, as you look at kids and, and, and grandkids with concern. But this, this problem that, that Paul was addressing was something that was seen in today's scripture that, we, that we're going to be sharing. Uh, and it's clearly seen uh, in Christ's passion uh, as, as he approaches the city of Jerusalem. So picking up in verse 41 of Luke chapter 19. And when Jesus drew near the, and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a bar barricade around you and surround you, and hem you in on every side, and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. You see, very clearly here, Jesus is 
sorrow, his grief. The term here that he wept, uh, I've heard it you know, put various ways, but the, the word literally means to be sobbing almost out of control. Barely under control, chest heaving. Okay, do you believe you kind of? I want you to see this because in in the midst of coming into all of this praise and adoration for him, he is grieving with a broken heart, and it's not just something that is you know somebody's you know looking to see you know catch a tear running down his, his side of his cheek or something. It's the, this word means to be, his chest is heaving with sobs. I don't know how many times in your life that you have been caught up in, in, in that kind of grief and that kind of sadness, but it's, it, you, you realize how uncontrollable it is. It's something beyond, you, you can't seem to even catch your breath hardly. That is a powerful picture to me of what is going on in the mind of Jesus and his 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 you know his again his passion in fact we call this the passion week as we move from from now on through to the end uh, to next sunday is easter and in that word passion is is the idea of intense emotion strong uh, and and uh, emotion, uh, and so as Jesus is is looking at these people, what he is seeing is he's looking ahead. You know, again, someone who sees uh, the end from the beginning, he knows what's coming to Jerusalem because of their refusal to serve and follow after God in His way. Here, the holy city. For the Hebrew people, think about the name Jerusalem when you read it in Scripture. How do the Jewish people go to Jerusalem? Every time Jesus goes, no matter what direction he's coming from, he's going up to Jerusalem. You know, it's like when we have our kids, you know, we'll say, oh, I'm, I'm going up to San Francisco or I'm going down to Portland. Uh, you know, and, and it sounds absolutely wrong. But in this particular situation, the reason why it's up is it's, it's the center of the of, of the, the Hebrew culture, the Hebrew life. The temple is there. Uh, the high priest is there. And uh, so Jesus, as he approaches the city, he sees what is coming towards them in the sense of judgment. And he grieves. He weeps. God's holiness requires judgment on sin. All who sin. We don't like to talk about this. It was uh, interesting. I uh, caught a, a, a bit of a uh, television ministry this morning that I didn't even know was still on. And uh, it's the same message on a third generation pastor of if, if, you know, and I don't mean to be unkind, but hunky-dory on the way to glory if you got Christ, you know? And, and nothing should, nothing out there, you know, if you just think positive, everything will be okay. 
This is a picture of Jesus looking at the world. Things were not hunky-dory, <laughs> you know, in, in the sense of the way he was looking at it. And the reason is because there is a thing called judgment. There is a thing called the wrath of God, and, we, and, and he's looking at it, and, and here he is coming to set that right in the sense of his sacrifice, and he still realizes that the nation of Israel as a whole is going to reject it, and he's grieved. So you see his passion as he rides into Jerusalem. We also see his passion in the sense of, of wanting to do the will of the Father. And no more clearly than when we get further down to Good Friday and uh, he pays the price. Thursday night, if you will, or the night before the crucifixion, we see very clearly him wrestle with the cup of judgment and the wrath of God. But he says that he will drink it. It's God's will. And we see again his passion. We see his resolve in the Gospel of Luke. In chapter 9, verse 51, is where it first talks about it, it, that he basically, it says he's turned his face towards Jerusalem. And the way that's worded there is the idea that he is now focused. From that point on, he is focused. He is headed towards Jerusalem and what is to come. He'll speak several times with the uh, disciples about what is ahead, including his death. But they still can't see it or grasp it. In fact, in Luke, in chapter 9, he, it starts in chapter 13, chapter 17, chapter 18, here in chapter 19, twice, he's approaching Jerusalem. He's coming to Jerusalem. He comes and in, in, in here in chapter 9 sees the city of Jerusalem, and as he approaches it, this is the time that he weeps. As you look at all of these different verses that, uh, in Luke about uh, the fact that Jesus turned towards Jerusalem, in fact, you know, verse 51 of chapter 9 says, Now when the days drew near for him to t be taken up, Jesus set out resolutely to go to Jerusalem. You know, that's one way of looking at the translation, resolutely, determinedly to go, uh, with his focus on that. And it was interesting, uh, I don't know how many of you, I think probably most of you are familiar with Max Licato and, and his writing. And uh, it, he, he writes, forget any suggestion that Jesus was trapped. You know, how many times he had, it says he's looking forward here towards going to Jerusalem. He's resolutely going. He says, forget any suggestion that Jesus was trapped. Erase any theory that Jesus made a miscalculation. Ignore any speculation that the cross was a last-ditch attempt to salvage a dying ministry. For if these words tell us anything, they tell us that Jesus died on purpose. No surprise, no hesitation, no faltering. No, the journey to Jerusalem didn't begin in Jericho, which is just this day you know, coming forward. It didn't begin in Galilee. It didn't even begin in Bethlehem. The journey to the cross began long before 
as the echo of the crunching of the fruit was still sounding in the garden, Jesus was leaving for Calvary. I thought that was powerful. Even as the echo of the fruit in the garden, <laughs> Garden of Eden, Jesus was already leaving for Calvary. Before the foundation of the world, he was resolutely turned towards that end and that goal. It's interesting that during this, this Passion Week, there's uh, three specific entries of, into Jerusalem that I look at that create a picture of who Jesus is, revealing, if you will, or declaring, actually, uh, who he is in the sense of, of authority and, and his, his person, what, his, what should be looked at in the sense of respecting him. Today's picture, he comes riding in on what? donkey or a colt, actually, which means the, 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 a young donkey at that, never been ridden. People try to make all sorts of, of efforts to look at that and say, you know, uh, that was, Jesus did that to, to show how humble he was. He did it this or, and various things. Jesus did it first and foremost that way to fulfill prophecy. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 says, your king is going to come riding on a donkey, a colt, even a colt, a foal. He's going to come riding. Your king is going to come this way. And when the people looked at him, they didn't think it was, you know, I, I had some people, I read one commentary that says, it must have been very humbling and for some people maybe even comical to look at. Well, maybe to the Romans it might have been comical to look at. But it certainly wasn't to the Jews. They understood that he was coming as a king in peace. And they were not, you know, they didn't stand back and say, oh, wait, this looks wrong. What were they doing collectively as a huge multitude? They were laying down their, their, their cloaks. They were getting palm branches, according to John, and, and, and laying them out and, and praising him as the king come in the name of the Lord. The, the son of David, all of the things that they, that they were recognizing him as, they didn't see him as the Messiah, king of kings, lord of lords in the context that he really was, but he did intentionally ride into Jerusalem that day as the king. Think about this. What had he been doing most of the time up to this point? Big anything that came up to draw attention to himself, what did he do, especially in Jerusalem? He left. He quietly, you know, moved out and, and go, went up and ministered in Galilee and other places in order to what? Be un, get out of that confrontation that was inevitable in Jerusalem. But not today. Not this day. He comes to Jerusalem as the king. And the leaders of the Jewish people knew exactly what he was saying. There was, they, they knew that scripture. They're the teachers of the word of God. They knew it. He was making a declaration. A declaration that, that people were excited to see. They were ready to crown him. What had just happened, by the way, that got so many people excited about Jesus? Anybody recall? We go back to John chapter 11. 
not just a healing, a raising of the dead, the resurrection of Lazarus. By the way, because of its proximity to Jerusalem, it was the talk of everybody. In fact, this time of the year, Passover, Jerusalem is quite crowded. There's nothing less than tens of thousands. There's a big debate over how many people really were there. But Josephus says, actually, visitors could have been upwards to a couple of million at times. But there were nothing less than tens of thousands of people from all over the Roman Empire who were scattered Jews who would come to Jerusalem to worship and honor and, and be a part of, of that, that's their, you know, a part of, of their relationship with God was to, to make that pilgrimage. And they were all talking about what had happened. So much so that it's interesting. After Jesus healed Lazarus, Caiaphas and some of the, high, the other priests got together and they said, uh, this is not a good thing. Can you imagine that? This is not a good thing. Too much attention. People are going to go crazy over this. They were right. It says they started figuring out again how they were going to kill him. Go on in chapter 12. They didn't only decide that they were going to kill Jesus. They decided they were going to kill Lazarus because he was the walking proof of Christ in the sense of, of his authority and his power. So Jesus comes in, and this time he doesn't make a quiet entrance. He just doesn't all of a sudden show up at the temple. <laughs> he comes riding in as the king. The next day he enters the city of Jerusalem, and he's not riding on a donkey this time, but he makes a great step, you know, just direct path to the place he had left the day before last in the, in the city, which was the temple. He'd gone into the temple and looked around. It says he basically surveyed it. The idea of taking stock of what was going on and what was in the temple. But he left. And then he came back the next day, and it was full of merchandising and, and merchants and buying and selling. We all know what happened. He cleansed the temple. You realize that the only person that has the right to do that is the high priest? Jesus had declared the day before he was their king. Now he's declaring something else. He's letting them know, I'm your high priest. The one that, that is spoken of, in, and they'll catch it eventually in the order of Melchizedek. But he is their high priest. Third day of entering, he started teaching. And his teaching wasn't just about the things of, 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 of Scripture and trying to understand, but there was a number of things that were prophetic as well. And so he's come as the king, he's come as the high priest, he now comes as prophet and teacher. You realize what's happening? He's assuming all of the offices over the people in the body of, of, of in the kingdom of God. King, high priest, and 
prophet. He's making a declaration, again, that the leadership of the Jewish people would see clearly. And still, the nation of, of Israel, the leaders, the scribes, the teachers, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Herodians who were the Jews that favored Herod and, and, and the Zealots, uh, who, who favored getting the Roman and Herod, for that matter, out. <laughs> All of them, you know, uh, were, their leadership were all looking at Jesus with, if, if he doesn't come to understanding things my way, <laughs> our way, you know, whatever. They were very drawn back and, and stepped back. And that's, Interesting thing is, is that they would simply continue in what Jesus had already pointed out and had wept over on the first day, their rejection of the kingdom of God. What Paul, I believe, probably wept over himself. Nothing new. You go, we, when we went through the book of Hebrews in chapter 3 and, and, and 4, it talks about all the way through the, the wilderness. They kept, you know, one day God would do something amazing and miraculous, and the next day they would say, why did you bring us out here to die? Think about it. God had done something amazing and miraculous with Lazarus, and now they're rejecting him. Over and over and over again, so many times that finally their thing was, they said, you know, rather than go face the giants in, in, in the land of Canaan, we would just as soon die in the desert. They cast their own judgment, basically. That generation died in the desert. Forty years of wandering instead of a, a couple of years of, of waiting on God and his way of doing it. It's interesting, even as you look at this, this sense of rejection from especially the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, the scribes and the teachers, and, and again, the Herodians as well into this picture, they, they, they linked together. They were enemies day to day. Wouldn't have anything to do with each other most of the time. But they linked together for the purposes of, of agreeing, we can't have this man. Alive. Enough so that uh, they would finally holler out even a, a, a bizarre statement on the day of, of the trial. We have no king but Caesar. Do you realize that that's a blasphemy from a Hebrew? I set this stage just to show what a sad reality it is that God can present everything to us and, 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 and we'll step back and say no for various reasons. But the bottom line is, is that there's a, two phrases in here that are, are, are quite convicting, if you will. 
what had happened that was going to bring this judgment against Jerusalem. Two things had happened. They missed the timing of the visitation, the time of visitation, the, 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 the reality of Christ with them right there. And they missed the things that make for peace with God. I was looking at that phrase especially. They missed the things that miss, make the peace for God. Christ is the Prince of Peace. What are the things that make peace for God? The, you know, the things that bring people into a peace relationship with God. Christ is the Prince of Peace. He's the source of that peace. To miss his visitation, to miss his... His, his presentation, to miss his teachings, to miss his miracles, or attribute him to anything and everything but who he is, is to miss the peace of God. And if you, are, if you don't have peace with God, there is nothing else. What is the peace of God? The peace with God? Even goes back to the day of, of, of the announcing of the angels. Born to you this day is, a, is, a, is, is the, the son of, of, of David. And he's going to bring peace on earth to men in whom God is well pleased. Not peace on earth the way we always think about it, but peace on earth to those who are in God is well pleased. How do you get well pleased with God? How do men get there? Well, we already said we've got sin. We can't reach it. We can't get there. The wages of sin is death. We're doomed. There must be only one you know, there must be an answer, though, because it says that it can happen. It's to accept the visitation of Christ, to accept his teachings, accept his miracles as revealing who he is, God in the flesh, the Son of God, the one who would go to the cross. And when he goes to the cross and he says, it is finished, that indeed it is done, and we receive that grace that he has poured out. It says here in, the, in, in Luke, it says, they did not know these things. And I've, I've read a couple of things that was kind of interesting about that. They said, well, how can you hold somebody accountable for something that they just didn't understand? That's not the meaning here. Context is everything in the Greek language. More, and, 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 and in any language, but we, we have so many ways of, of, of doing something differently in our language. But here, patterns a parallel where Jesus said something about knowing people. Matthew 7, verse 22. A bunch of people come up to Jesus in the, in the judgment and basically say, you know, we did all this in your name. And Jesus says, I never knew you. Does anybody see anything wrong with that general statement if it just means that, you know, in, in a general way he's saying, I don't, I don't know who you are? Or I don't understand. Is there something wrong with that way of looking at that word there? Of course there is. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He knows their hearts, their minds, their souls to the depth of who they are. So it's not that he didn't understand them, know them. What it was is he says, I, I don't acknowledge you. And that's the same kind of way this is being used here. 
They did not acknowledge who he was. They knew what Jesus had been teaching. They knew what he was saying. They knew his actions, his miracles, especially, again, the raising of Lazarus. What they had missed was the choice to not be at peace with God. There's only one way to be at peace with God. Through Jesus Christ. Jesus says it absolutely clearly. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other avenue. There's no other way to the Father but by and through me. Period. No other way. But once you come through him, he promises Peace with God in the sense of judgment is covered. You are no longer at odds with God and, and, and because of the, the wages of, of, of your sin because it's been covered by Christ. And now at peace to rest in, the, in his grace with the reality that you know you're, you, you've got eternal life. But you can face a fallen world as it's, as it, as it's falling faster, it seems, and uh, realize, you know, I, I, I said this the other day to somebody, I, you know, uh, we're pessimistic optimists. Somebody said that's an oxymoron. I said, well, generally speaking, but not from my, from my point of view in this particular instance. I'm a pessimist because I've read the scriptures. I know what's going to happen, and it is going to get worse. But then it's going to come to an end. Christ returns. And then all heaven's going to break loose. Isn't that a neat way to look at it? You know, we normally say something else. You know, all heaven's going to break loose. And we're going to be a part of it. Why? Because we're at peace with God. We've recognized his visitation, the time of his coming. We've recognized who he is. And we've joined with what Paul said we needed to do. Because, again, wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. And then he goes on in Romans uh, 10, scriptures that we've been shared uh, several times as we've been going through the book of Romans, uh, verses 9 through 10, uh, is if we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and we believe in our heart that he's the Son of God, we're saved. All of this accomplished by or through Christ and the cross. In the words, it is finished. I look at the, the reality that I believe because of well, a scripture out of Ezekiel, basically, the idea that says that God is grieved over the, the, the death of, of those who are dying in their sins without his peace. And so that's still the case today. And uh, we just want to make sure that, that we're grasping this. If, if Christ's purpose is to bring salvation, to bring peace between men and God, 
that is supposed to become our purpose. And as our purpose, it's not, you know, someone will, might say, well, that's easier for you, Pastor Bob, because your job dedicates you to that kind of a thing, you know. But it, we're all called to it. Because of the peace of God in us, we want to share it with others. And, uh, but I realized that I look at Paul and his desire for his Hebrew brothers and sisters. And I look at Jesus weeping, chest heaving with sobs. And I realize how short that I fall of being zeroed in on his purpose. I want to encourage you this week. Do you realize that people, just because of the season, they, they don't even understand why, most of them, but they're still more receptive just because there's a tradition, take advantage of it. Take advantage of it with your kids. Take advantage of it with your neighbors, your coworkers, <laughs> wherever you can. And I'm not asking you to take your Bible and go beat anybody over the head with it or anything like that. But just that opportunity to, to say, you know, uh, uh, you're, you know, somebody was going to bring somebody possibly across your, your path this, this, this week who they're sharing with you and they realize they're not at peace. And uh, see if God won't give you the opportunity to share some words of hope, encouragement, maybe even words that will bring them to peace. And uh, I was thinking, uh, you know, uh, going back and just looking at my own walk with the Lord, my first uh, key days as, as a believer, my first Christmas, was an amazing thing. Because I saw so much that I'd never seen before. I'd gone out and sang all those Christmas carols and, and hay rides and flatbed truck full of hay and I won't tell you what else. And, and uh, never meant a thing. Didn't register in any way. That first Christmas was something else. So was the first Easter. You know, it was an amazing celebration for me. And I see other people nodding their heads thinking, yeah, I remember that. Pray that God would bring that freshness, that, 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 that freshness back. I think John would actually refer to it as first love, but just to bring it back. And that this week we would express it, whether we're, we're traveling or whether we're at work or wherever we are. Ask God for the eyes to see. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He did it through the cross. No ands, ifs, or buts about it. When he said it was finished, it was a done deal for all who would confess and believe. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing story. And I always cautiously use the word story because sometimes the people put the word story book kind of thought with it. It's an amazing account of a historical event. How's that? So as we go to communion, Maybe this will be part of your prayer this morning. God, I want to be in love with you as much as I ever have been before and even more. And, uh, ask the ushers to come forward, pass the communion out, hold it until we've all been served, and we'll share together.